0: My name is Susie Can and I hope you enjoy exploring with me the thoughts that come with this thread. If you have any interest in supporting what I'm doing or getting in touch, please do so through the website kylak.ie, where you will also find other resources and connections that I create around each podcast so that if some of the tweaks of interest come to you through them, you have a place to go to go a little further and deeper or to find other information or to find a way to support by maybe wanting to collaborate or offer something or even a donation. Thanks for listening. I've been exploring the notion of ancestors and their relationship to land. And I haven't done that through a fully scholarship or data or evidence base for a reason. I I leave that to others. There are many good scholars looking at records in many different ways. But I'm also aware that scholars can have their biases, they can have their findings overturned and there's an evolving knowledge. I've been exploring this more in an imaginal way, trying to think about different aspects of our ancestors and different aspects of the land that they came to. And it's unknown exactly how long ago, 14,000 years ago, or 30,000 years, to Hibernia, to Era, to this land I live on now. And it's not Clear exactly when, but it keeps on changing and seeming to get longer ago. One of the things that is hard for us to imagine is the kinds of changes and what in ecology they talk about in terms of shifting baselines. So just going back to one of my ancestors and imagining what my grandmothers and grandparents would have just that one generation or two ago would have seen in the landscape around them is already massively different than what I see in the landscape around me. One of the things that I got to do not so long ago was watch some cine films. An aunt of mine on her honeymoon as they drove around little laneways and small roads in County Cavan and later down to Wexford. And I could see, even though these were mostly little shots of of them and their car and small little bits out the window, but I could see the lushness of growth, the, the depth of the field edges and just a sense of abundance in biomass. And that's just one generation ago. And so what we see is how many birds or insects, things I've noticed in my own lifetime would be not seeing seagulls flying after tractors because the shifting baseline in the soil is there's not as much food there as there was in the past when soil got turned over. You always saw seagulls and other birds following along behind because there was so much life in the soil for them to go down and eat the big earthworms, which indicate the health of soil. And we also had the kinds of headlights and windscreens that if you drove around at all in the summer, you had to clean your windscreen all the time because of the amount of insects that whacked into windscreens and met their end there. So even in my lifetime, I know that the hum and the buzz of summer is lessened. Trying to imagine exactly what it was like for our ancestors in terms of the plant life, the animal life, the insect life, it's its quite hard to fully grasp that. But I've had a few experiences in less touched ecosystems. And there is certainly when we're talking about or imagining any sense of exploration of our own being of a place or being indigenous to a place it's easier to imagine that worldview of many indigenous peoples around the world where they feel themselves to be not separate from but wholly part of the environments they live in if you get to visit a a less developed a less denuded or degraded landscapes or forest so in a few different places in the world i have experienced that where I got to step inside of an old, old, old ancient growth woodland. One was in Estonia. One was in Poland, Eastern Poland. And another was in the tropics in, in Belize. And to be inside of less managed, more biodiverse woodlands. And it was, it's a feeling that you are inside of an organism. So I can try to imagine that if I felt that just stepping in and out of woods in the one in Poland, I kept walking in and out of its threshold because of the change of feeling of being out in the meadow, which was also a very diverse meadow, and then walking through into this kind of wall of trees that was evoked for me the stories of the Ents in the actual book, Lord of the Rings rather than the films, this wall of trees and then walking just maybe 10 feet, 15 feet into the woods and the whole rest of the world vanishing and feeling like I was already lost in the woods. And so I kept walking back out just to experience that threshold change uh, of being swallowed by the woodlands. So when I think of Ireland as covered in many, many woods and there being changes certainly not wrought as strongly or as as they are with the with the combination of population and technology, you get this bigger impact on environment. And so we had smaller populations and less technology. So there would have been some changes of field clearages as Neolithic farmers began to modify their environment. But there could have been other changes that happened that would have been maybe felt because of that connection to your environment where there's fossil records of changes like dieback at the moment. We are experiencing ash dieback as something so integral to the Irish countryside, so woven into traditional uses, and not least of which the hurl. Also, earlier we had Dutch elm disease, but there's fossil records that that sort of thing happened before, that different species of trees were attacked by something or had some effect that you you have massive diebacks in kind of ancient soil records and definitely in ice records this period that we've lived in has has had changes we've brought but there were always changes and people would have presumably had like we're having a kind of a shift in relationship and going those great ash trees that we've known they're going And then maybe a generation or two later wouldn't know them in their landscape. So this adaptation has been a kind of constant theme I've tried to explore the notion of our ancestors because we are still adapting, we're still modifying our environment and we're still having relationships with plants and animals in our environment. There's amazing books and knowledge of those kinds of relationships. There's a wonderful big tome of a book on an ethnobotany of Ireland. It was written by former head of the Botanic Gardens in Ireland and it's got records of all of the plants in Ireland that they can find that they have record or reference to that humans interacted with in some way or another for human use. Whether it was something they cut like gorse and used as fodder for cattle and horses, or whether it was things like bracken roots that were used in making lye for soap, or whether it's willow which had so many different uses both medicinal and craft. In our few hundred years, you can go back and get a sense of some of the cottages that exist. A friend recently visited one that is an ancient little Wexford cottage built with stone and clay and hazel and rushes and thatch. And the simplicity of that is not very different from the simplicity of a roundhouse built of fibre and mud almost anywhere else in the world with a fireplace and wattle and daub and all of those kinds of materials. So that sense of the plants that we've interacted with, that we've had for food and forage and fiber and building materials, one of the ways to, I think, really understand our ancestors is to be interacting with those things to that route back then to our own connection to land is through understanding those materials and understanding those living plants and all of the creatures. And there are a real resurgence of that. There's different people that are doing nature connection workshops, really ancient skills workshops and connections. But there is some draw to people to go and learn from others who've already found their way back to skills that our very far ancestors had in living from and with The land skills like making gum out of pine resin or the very fundamental skill of making a bow drill and creating a spark and making fire. Or just being aware in an environment enough that you can see signs and sounds and songs of birds and the footprints of creatures, mammals, rabbits and badger and deer. And just knowing who's there because those are all very quiet creatures but knowing they are sharing environments that you are too passing through, there is a big call to a lot of people to to know what's there, to be quiet enough, to still enough, or to expand awareness enough to pay attention to beyond even the plant life. And there are many folk herbalists and other herbalists who are rekindling knowledge of medicine that's in our environment that can support our immune systems, can give us foundational nutrition from wild plants and fungi that is missing from a lot of our modern industrial diets. So these wilder hedgerow foods tap into minerals and nutrients that are otherwise harder to access. And those skills, those things, it's not by doing any of this thinking about ancestors that I am suggesting a romanticism about our past, especially in the more recent past. There's plenty of evidence of patriarchy, dominance over women, and maybe you go back far enough, you have a more balanced culture where women were in the goddess cultures. And there's some great writers who are exploring how some of the narratives that we've been told of ancient times are inaccurate because they were translated and edited and changed by the modern patriarchal scholars who were uncovering them. There's one person, Sharon Blackie, who's written a lot about that, about how you get all these male heroic tales, but they've literally edited out the beginning of, say, how Finn McCool might have gone on a shamanistic, mystical journey and is the hero of a story, but that what's been edited out is the Kaliak who sent him to do work to balance the land because there was something in the ecosystem giving them a feedback that there was some change afoot and something they needed to go and listen and open their gated awareness and pay attention and figure out if there was something that they could interact with and support within the living system they were part of. So there's lots of scholarship that we have to re examine in the light of that, but not a perfect time. What maybe we have become aware of more and more is the sweet spot of climate that our ancestors might have lived in much, much harsher environments. And that should we continue on the path we are on, that we may be living in those much, much harsher environments with increasing extreme weather events and storms. There's evidence of different temperatures, tempests that you can look back at. We're not sure what we're going to have to adapt to, but I think just even using your imagination to think or going out and connecting with the ecosystem and the current plants, animals, insects, it helps to build that relationship back to land and through that then a sense of lineage. But I'm also aware, and it came out strongly in the interview that I did with Mora Gamble a couple of batches ago, that you're, you're from where you're from now and i was interested to hear that response by the aboriginal friends and elders that morag has had dialogue with in what is now called australia and them talking about where she was from, where she'd grown up in a suburb. She knew its Aboriginal name, but didn't feel that she had any right to have a sense of belonging to that land or being from that land. And this Aboriginal elder suggested otherwise and said, no, you you actually have an obligation to that land. You are from that land and are now obliged to be a steward of that land and to think about your stewardship of the land in that way. And I think that's maybe something for a lot of people trying to explore this. They don't want to be putting more colonial types of action and attitude out in the world. Maybe that we also need to not be too afraid of interacting with the world in a positive way. And and there's many different ways, which I'll talk about a bit more on the systems thread. The people are doing stewardship of land now. And I think that just weaving into all these threads, this thread on ancestors and the land is a a tool to think about how they lived and how they made shelter, because we know the materials they had available to them. They had stone, they had wood, small dimension timber and fibrous things like willow and bramble and pine roots and all of these different pieces of our natural environment and just getting to know those and then getting to know how they put them together for simple shelters and then how by doing that, by just exploring those materials, being able to be aware of forage and wild foods that still exist in our landscape again. You know, some of the processing that went on that I talked about in the last episode about how many seeds it would have taken to make a meal. It helps us get a sense that this is a a landscape in which survival has gone on for a long time and I think that helps us feel a little more secure in really uncertain modern times to go well these materials are here, this food is still here, this shelter is still possible. It can form part of ingredients of system change of ecological and sustainable practice, all of those kinds of things but it also can connect Connect us to a bit more of belonging to the land you're on or from, the lineage of stewardship that goes well beyond our lifetime into future generations, and what we can leave behind when we become the ancestors for those generations. And talking about this as the last in the eight threads on ancestors, as I'm doing these recordings at Samhain, it is the time in the Celtic sense of another of the crossover festivals between the solstice and the equinox festivals that were considered, from all we can understand, to be liminal times, thin space times. And particularly as the year ends and the ground changes and leaves fall off of trees and the sense of the death of the year comes, there was this festival that was deeply connected with ancestors and that exists across multiple cultures in the world the day of the dead there's some amazing african cultures that i heard about i think we never can take in the diversity of ways in which people have viewed the same thing like for example gender that i've talked about in other other threads the diversity of genders and then the diversity of rituals around death and yet there's often common threads as well. There was a ritual that I learned of from a particular tribe that was not just visiting graves at a particular festival time, but digging up the remains of dead ancestors and kind of partying with them, bringing them along to a a festival like Samhain. And for Samhain, it was communing and lots of divining about what would come in the next year. And lots of celebration of ancestors, but also stories and rituals that have come down through were about putting out the fire in the house and dressing up as different genders and going around looking as something not your normal self and dressing up as something that you could be liminal, you could switch between multiple things at that time. And that You didn't want your home to be hospitable to any negative influences from bad ancestors and you wanted to confuse any of those that did not recognize you. But there was also dividing and tuning in and games of chance and luck and Apple games associated for many cultures with the underworld or the other world and these kind of barn brack games that have continued down through the years of, of finding something that indicates what your crops are going to be like or whether you're going to get married. and That sort of a notion, I think, is it's a good time to come back around to the end of this thread on ancestors and just remember that they're for us to play and, and experiment with our imaginations as to what they mean in our lives today and what they might mean all the way on through the generations.